Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. And today I've got a guest with me I've been looking forward to for a really long time. Um, uh, she is a grief specialist and author and does host a podcast as well. Um, uh, her name is Shelby Forsythia. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, James. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, it's really, yeah, I'm really pleased to have you here because, uh, you know, I've read your book and it's really amazing and seen your uh, your work, um, listened to you in a podcast on Rob, on the Robcast as well. And, yeah, just hearing you talk about grief, which is something that I'm really passionate about exploring, is, is really great and so much of your story mirrored my own. And doing this series we're doing on grief, I really wanted to have someone like you on to explore this. So, welcome. I'm excited to be here. And just um, open the conversation on grief, because I think a lot of people think, oh, I haven't had somebody die, so I'm not grieving. I'm like, oh, you would be very wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, absolutely. Yeah, grief is something that we all go through on a regular basis like there's so there's it's just uh yeah as, a, as individuals and as a culture as well i think correct yeah <laughs> so there's there's this i don't want to i hesitate to call them small griefs but there's the individual griefs that we experience and then there's the collective or community or societal griefs that we experience as well like the things we're all going through all at the same time yeah mm. we've into that absolutely yeah, I've become more and more aware of that in the last few years. I've, I have this theory that the uh, a lot of the, the problems that we've got in, particularly in America and the UK right now, are to do with a failure to grieve well culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Every, almost every morning, especially if I'm forced to watch the news at any point, I try. I really try not to. <laughs> um, but if I'm forced to watch the news, I'll see a headline and I'm like, oh, something we used to love is dying. Mm. And whether that's a, a way of doing politics or um, um, environmental catastrophes or even just like way of life in terms of, <laughs> I've been laughing lately at all of the OK Boomer uh, memes that are circulating. Oh, yeah, right, but like yeah. it, even in essence, baby boomers are grieving the fact that technology has made it so that things like playing outside or living in an unplugged world that way of life is dying and so like there's there's grief in the complaints of everybody's on their phones all the time and nobody talks anymore and you go to a restaurant and you see like six people have their phone out on the table so there's like there's grief there but it never uses the word grief it's just like the language of oh something that we used to identify with is dying yeah so yeah yeah yeah. and that's a collective thing that's happening right now yeah and a lot of that to do with nostalgia as well like Mm. you know like make america great again and take back control you know like yeah brexit is about people who want us to go back to the 1940s and 50s when we were the great when we had the british empire basically and we were the greatest nation on earth and donald trump is something similar in america i think yeah um yeah and it's not it's not it's not a surprise that it's older people who are voting for these people as well because they're the mm. people that are grieving the most in a sense um, well and, and they've seen a world that I have not seen I'm 27 years old 
and I was not around in the world that they are grieving. And so I don't, I don't know how great it was. Uh, and exactly. I really can't, I can't buy into the, the belief of that. So I can't grieve that. Um, but I, I was recently a guest on a podcast called grief, a love story. And this actually, we recorded it in 2018, but she's just published it now in 2019, 2020. And I talked about how the biggest reason that Trump got elected here in the United States was because of grief, because mm. he gave people the impossible promise of, I will give what you have lost back to you. And that's, you know, for mm. a mother who's grieving a child, I will revive your child or a, a, a child grieving a parent, I will give your, your your father back, or all of these promises. And Trump didn't say these things. He's like, I'm not going to give you your child back. I'm not going to give you your father back. I'm not going to give you your sibling, best friend, spouse, whatever. But this promise to return a dream that has died and gone away, that a mm. lot of people are grieving, that has not been expressed. Yeah, I think that's a huge reason that he got elected that really hasn't been talked about. And too many people are laughing at Make America Great Again, when in reality there's this language in there of, oh, there's a group of people who believed it really used to be great, and they missed that, and it's been unacknowledged. Mm. And it's not necessarily our job to acknowledge that grief, but if it goes unacknowledged, then you sprout a Trump. Or think, think people that speak to this idea of, I can bring what you have lost back to you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Didn't, didn't expect to get that deep so quickly. <laughs> we will go right there. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm like thinking about a lot is, is that, um, yeah, and creating something to do with that. I still don't know what it will be, but I'm thinking about it. Um, but tell us a bit of your own story and your own experiences of grief, which kind of led you to, to take up the path that you're on now. Yeah, so um, the biggest experience of grief that I've faced thus far is the death of my mom, and that happened in 2013 on the day after Christmas, and it, I never quite know where to start telling this story because her death was kind of the cherry on top of world's worst cake, Um and I, for about four years of my life, both of my parents were in and out of the hospital. My dad had lost his job. I came out of the closet as a queer person, and it wasn't accepted. Uh, developed an eating disorder as a result. And then there were instances in these four years where, at some point, we were on the precipice of death with both of my parents. And after living a childhood that had almost no disruption or, uh, or dysfunction or toxicity or anything in it at all to have been whammied with loss after loss after loss after loss after loss after loss after loss was just I felt like um, a lot of gravers express this to me too when I work with clients now is that I felt like a pinball in a pinball machine where I was just ricocheting from loss to loss to loss to loss to loss and every time one would stop hurting a new one would come up and I would be like activated or lit up with grief all the time and I was grieving my identity and my role in the household and who my parents were to me and my role as a friend and, you know, no longer being able to be in the closet and no longer feeling like home is a safe place. And then the cherry on top of that was that my mom, who had breast cancer in 2012, uh, it went into remission in 2013. It came roaring back at the end of 2013. Doctors thought it was pneumonia or a bad cold or something in her lungs that just wouldn't go away. And by the time they got in there and opened her up, they're like, well, crap cancer's back. 
and mm-hmm. we can do some things to to prolong her life, but we can no longer save it. And as soon as we got that news, my mom, you know, kind of, I would say she took the news with grace and in as much stride as she could, um, but she made the decision to die at home. And so we called in hospice and told all of our friends and family, and she kind of made her own final preparations. And everybody told us we have six weeks to six months. We get a pretty good long time to say goodbye because she was otherwise relatively healthy aside from the fact that there was cancer in her lungs that nobody could do anything about. Mm. Um, And then she died in a week. And to have her vanish off the face of the earth in just like the snap of your fingers, I I get chills talking about it because it's still the most surreal, bizarre, fantastic, misunderstandable thing that has ever happened to me. Like I still... Mm even though I was there when it happened, like I comprehend the fact that it happened, there's still a disbelief about the fact that it took place. Mm. Um, and, and that was my really enormous introduction slash plunge into the dark world of grief, loss, death, bereavement, wrestling with identity, becoming a new slash different slash unfortunate person that I never wanted to be. And I think it was the first time in my life that I really felt like helpless, hopeless, I have no choice or autonomy or power in what happens here, and the sensation of being like flattened or steamrolled or just totally leveled by that, I was like, I have never been in such a place of inability, just non, non-action to just have to to sit there and, and take it. I just felt like I was being pounded against over and over mm. again. Um, and that really led me to an enormously dark place in my life. Um, I was getting ready to graduate college and my parents' biggest wish for me and my sister both was that we finished school. And so my mom died the day after Christmas in 2013, we were on winter break. And as soon as classes resumed, both my sister and I went back and I've mentioned this on other podcasts and interviews I've done. That's still one of the biggest regrets of my life is that I didn't fight harder to stay out of school because to go back to... Um, the cesspool of being between 19 and 23 and uh, college campus and drinking and, and just being in classes or being in this structure where you're graded on your abilities, like it just didn't make sense to my grieving brain. And simultaneously, there were little to none of my peers that really got what I was going through. And so it was just an enormously hard place to be. And so I really struggled um, after graduation. I moved to Chicago still struggling with grief. I got enormously sick. My body kind of burned out from the stress of my mom dying and then going back to classes and working three jobs and, you know, graduating with honors and all the things that it took to get out of the system of college. Um, and then to, to come out of that, I got incredibly ill and I was kind of, I was looking at my grief. I knew it existed, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And I was, I was kind of poking around in books and kind of talking to relatives and all this other stuff, but for the most part, I was like, I just wish this thing would go away. I was so mad that that it existed and that my mom died so young and, and that I was all alone. And there were so many stories I was telling myself. Um, and then the pivot point came one day when I was in this coffee shop in downtown Chicago about two and a half years after my mom died. And I was doing a writing workshop and, and it was something I was interested in. And I had my headphones in, my earbuds in. And I was typing, and I was there for about a half hour. And when I got up to leave, I picked up my book bag, and it was lighter than normal. And I was like, what What the heck is that? And so I stuck my hand in there, and I was like, oh, my God, somebody just stole my wallet. 
and I was absolutely enraged by this because I've never been um, stolen from or robbed or burglarized in any fashion on this level. And on top of that, I had just finished applying for a job, so my Social Security card was in the wallet. I'm like, they could do anything to me. And I, I went home with the one card I had left, which was my bus pass, and I got to my apartment, slammed the door, dropped my stuff, and I, I just had no control over what happened next. Or I felt like I was literally walking in somebody else's shoes, living somebody else's life, but I cranked up my stereo to this really loud music. I dropped to my knees, and I just started raging. And, and like, I wasn't throwing things, but I was pounding the hardwood of the floor and, and yelling and cursing at the ceiling and, like, shaking my fists at God or whatever I thought was running the show and, and just angry that people thought they could dare to take advantage of other people. And what was happening in that moment that I see now, like, six years later, is, like, that loss of financial security, safety, assuredness in the world ran really parallel to the loss of my mom's security, safety, assuredness in the world. Mm. And I, I was raging and pounding the floor for like a half hour. And then eventually I ran out of steam, as you do when you're exerting that much energy for so long. And I was laying on the, the hardwood floor and, and my head was tilted to the side. And I felt like I had gone from being a pinball in a pinball machine to like a glass that had just been run through the dishwasher. It was like there was no more in me. I had nothing left to to spill out and spill over. And I got up and I made a cup of tea and I was like, oh my God. I stared at this spot on the floor. I was like, what the heck just happened? I could not believe that that had just taken place and that nobody had called the cops. And I asked myself out loud, I said, what in the hell was that? And this little voice showed up out of nowhere and almost at a whisper level it was like you just gave yourself permission to grieve and in that moment it was like the door unlocked and everything that I had been asking to go away or stay under the surface or just like get rid of itself like the trash take itself out it came up to the surface but it wasn't it wasn't bad. It wasn't out to kill me. It wasn't out to get me. It wasn't out to ruin my life. In that moment, I recognized grief as, I didn't put it in these words at the time, but I recognized grief as a human experience as opposed to a force that I had to fight against. And I think that's where so much resistance comes up in grief and loss. And from mm -hmm. that day on, that was about four years ago to now, um, I've done almost nothing else with my time but study other people's works on grief and start my own podcast on grief and loss and ask and interview people about their experience with it and write my own book on grief and do online courses related to grief because I'm so fascinated by what happens when we treat grief as a human experience instead of something we need to pretty up or toss in the trash or fix or mend or heal as soon as possible so we can get back to our quote-unquote normal lives what would happen if we saw grief as almost like a rite of passage like we see um like a like a golden birthday or going through puberty or learning your first word like why don't we treat grief as one of those milestones instead of this really ugly monstrous thing that we need to fight and clean up as quickly as possible. And so those are the, the big, enormous questions that inform everything that I do now. And it's literally taken me from a place of just studying grief on my own to literally sharing grief with a lot of people almost every day of my life. Hmm. 
Absolutely, yeah. And uh, those who listen to this show will know my own my story of grief. Which you know, I mean, I lost I lost my mother when I was twenty three mm-hmm. to an to asthma. Um, um, and it's it's really interesting hearing your reaction that that in the that that visceral kind of experience in the bedroom. Or your room, whatever it was, all that grief coming out because that—that's definitely something which has happened to me. It just took longer for me because I think I was—I was kind of caught up in religious certainty at the time. So religious certainty kind of tries to control and build structures around your pain so that you don't feel it. So, like it, yeah. And so what happens is you think you've got healing from your pain, but you haven't. And you've just found a way around it. And so uh, I didn't know that <laughs> um, until I had... Actually, my, my moment was four years ago as well, funnily enough. Um, I was in a home group and I just started... I, I was literally just started talking. All this stuff started coming out of me. I physically felt pinned to this sofa... And it was like, just stuff was coming out of me. Physically, like, I can't even remember. It wasn't, I don't remember what I was saying. Mm-hmm. It was just this, I just remember how my body felt. Like this, this pain was kind of being released all through my body and coming out of me. Um, and since then I've been on this journey, kind of journey of, of healing and growth and transformation and learning to grieve well. Um, and so I totally resonate with what you're saying. And there's that thing, isn't there, where... It's not just where well, you want to scream, but it's not anger. It's just grief yeah. that you need to get out of you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I've had all those moments where you, where I come home and like something like that wallet you losing, you having your wallet stolen. Like where something has, where I've lost something important, like my wallet or something doesn't work, and suddenly it's just like all this, all this energy comes out from nowhere. Like where did that come from? That was. This this was like a really small thing in comparison to what I'm feeling right now, and it's just grief coming out, and it needs to come out. Um, I'm landing on this image right now of, of like when toddlers throw tantrums. I'm thinking like in the grocery store, there's a chocolate bar that they want, and so they scream and yell and throw themselves down on the ground, and they and they holler about it until they don't anymore. Um, and I think a lot of the reason that our our culture society quote-unquote allows that is because there's a force that kind of checks the toddler at some point there's an adult a parent a grandparent whoever nearby who's like eventually this tantrum will stop or they're telling them stop crying it's going to be okay we're going to leave the store kind of whatever the consequences of the tantrum are and i think one of the fears in grief at least it was for me about breaking down at that level was like i'm an adult the horsepower that I have behind throwing a tantrum is a lot more destructive and there's no one here to check me. Mm. Like there's no one here to, to stop the tantrum. And so I thought kind of by tilting into this, that I was going to lose myself in it forever, which is why I put up so many walls in those first two years of, 
I will feel nothing because if I do, I'm going off the deep end. This mm. is the end of my life as I know it. When in reality, I had already experienced the end of my life as I know it, but I was refusing to live it. And that's two totally yeah. different things. Um, and uh, I know listeners can't see us looking at each other right now, but we're both like furiously nodding our heads. <laughs> we're like, yes, this is what we're talking that's about. That's right. Um, yes. We've both experienced this. Yes. Yeah. And, and I've never put it in that language before, but as an adult, I was like, nobody's going to check me. Nobody's going to take care of me if I actually do go off the deep end. Whereas when we're toddlers mm. and stuff, somebody's, somebody's doing something about the tantrum. I felt a need to be, um, I'm going to use the word monitored. I felt a need for somebody to like supervise this process because I'm like, I have never been here before. Um, and it reminds me a lot of when you were telling your story about being in a, in a home group experience of the first time I broke down in a group of people was when I was being trained as a grief recovery specialist. And we have to do this really intense work of writing forgivenesses, apologies, and statements of emotional significance to somebody that we love who has died, and then you must read it out loud as if you're delivering communication to the person who died. And it's heavy work, and I love the grief recovery method. If you're looking for a specialist near you, you can go to griefrecoveryinstitute.com and find and like type in your zip or postal code, and they'll find they're all over the world. Um, but the last step in this process is to read this letter that you've created, and I had to forgive my mother or say I was forgiving my mother or had an intent to for some really hurtful things she did in life, and then I had to apologize for hurtful things I did to her in life, and then say these significant emotional statements of, I love you, I wish you had seen me, I can't believe you're really gone, and all this stuff, and I was literally melting down and collapsing next to my partner. And and what was so amazing about that experience was that there was a monitor, there was a supervisor, there was somebody in the room who was neutral as this experience was happening. And I think the biggest reason I went through this training was I was like, okay, I've been in the role of the person having the, the tantrum or the meltdown or the being in that place where everything falls apart. How can I now be in the place where I get to hold the space for the people for whom everything is falling apart? And that's a majority of what I do right now. And it's not that I don't still fall apart myself because I certainly do, but I have my own monitors and stuff that I do that with. And now that I've, gone through that logical training but also had the spiritual experience of going all the way down to that place i call it the place where hopelessness tips into surrender um mm. it's it's i can now hold that space for other people because i have seen and known what it's like to live in that world mm. yeah yeah the, 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 yes i mean every every time you share a story I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of a similar experience that I had you know it's um, it's really strange like I remember I think this is a couple of years ago I was watching this movie it's called Me Before <coughs> Me Before You and um, I won't go into the movie but there's a grieving involved at the end um, this guy who's paraplegic and his carer kind of falls in love with him. Um, but he's decided he's going to euthanize himself. Um, she thinks she can save him, and she thinks she has. But then she hasn't, and he just does it anyway. And at the end, there's a, there's a, he's, she is reading a letter from him to her about how she needs to get on with her life and giving her, permi giving her permission to get on with her life and, you know do the things that she wants to do that she was meant to do and be free um and uh 
So I cried at the end because I always cry at movies anyway. But <laughs> but then there was this like delayed reaction. Like I got up to go to my room afterwards, and suddenly I just keeled over for no, for no reason. And it it was like my whole body was crying. It, I wasn't. It wasn't just an emotional thing. It was it was grief again, but it was like that release, like in a really healthy way, just being given permission to come out. Like, oh, it's okay for me to go on with my life. Like, I don't have to hold on to things from the past. I don't have to hold on to. Like, I don't. I don't have to stay where I am. I can. I can, I can actually move on. Um, and uh, yeah, when you do that. When you do that in community, that's really good. Um, I was on my own, actually, at the time. But, yeah, community is really good for that. You know, the first time I cried um, was... I didn't cry for two weeks after my mother passed away because I was trying to be strong for everyone else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I apologised when I did cry. And I was like, and my sister was like, no, you don't have to apologise. This is good. Um, so, yeah, it just... So much of what you're saying resonates um, with me. Yeah, and that speaks to something that's come up um, recently in my world is that tears are not the only expression of grief. Mm. I think there's this myth going around of, like, if you haven't cried, you haven't grieved. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> grief has a far larger spectrum yeah, than that. Um, because my default emotion was rage. And so Same. I don't think I cried for, I don't know. I don't remember the first time I cried after my mom died. I know I didn't cry at her memorial. Um I cried at her wake, but it was very much, yeah, like meltdown tantrum style where I was literally being held up by the people around me. Um, but but these <laughs> these cinematic, softly falling tears with piano music in the background, I think is what a lot of people have in their heads as a picture of grief. Mm. And I'm like, it can look like everything from, from tears to rage to total avoidance to making a scrapbook together and looking through it to looking for them in past life communications or in, you know, psychic ordeals or things like that. Mm. I remember the day after my mom died. I've never told this story publicly before, but my mom was the tea drinker in the house. My dad was the coffee drinker. And she had this electric tea kettle that she kept on the counter next to the stove. Mm. And we were all sitting around a table kind of figuring out, I think catering for her memorial service or something like that. Mm. We were figuring something out. But it was me, my sister, all of my aunts and uncles, cousins, extended family, blah, blah, blah. And out of nowhere, the switch for this electric tea kettle turned on, and it started boiling water. And then the chandelier above our head, which was on a dimmer switch, went all the way down to the lowest white setting and then all the way up to the highest. And we were all looking at each other like, (laughs) what's happening right now? We had this moment of, I'm still talking about it, but we had this moment of like, delight and disbelief and gratitude and togetherness and like we were all in the same room at the time all all enormously sad that there was a reason that we would have to get the joke but then all thinking it was the funniest thing that had ever happened to any of us because it was happening the day after my mom died and so we're there were all of these emotions all together and the stamp that I would put on that would be grief and like nobody was shedding tears but I would still classify that as grief because I mean, and the grief recovery method defines grief as the collections of emotions that experienced by a human being after the end of or change in a normal pattern of behavior. So Mm. if somebody you love dies, if you lose your job, if your pet dies, if you're estranged from your spouse or from your parents, 
uh, or your children, or you suddenly lose a lot of money, or you have to move into a new house, or something like that. Like, the collection of emotions that follows that is grief. So, like, tears be damned, you really don't have, they're not a requirement to check the box of, yes, I'm grieving. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We, uh, grief is... Everyone grows differently. I mean, I know people say that all the time, but it's true. But it's it's really, really, really true. Um, everyone grieves in their own way. Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of, I had a lot of anger for a long time because I bottled up all my grief basically. Like any time something went out, any time something happened that was out of my control that I didn't that I didn't like. That would, that would, that would, that would just set me off. You know, like all oh, for years, this happened. Like, yeah, and it was just that feeling of like something has happened. I can't control it. I've lost something, you know, uh, and it was all to do with this anger, at, at grief. It was, it was, mm-hmm. um, it was. That's what it was, you know. And I was angry at her <laughs> for leaving me. I was angry at God yeah. for letting it happen. I was angry at, you know. Uh, and that's one of the hardest things, isn't it? When you have to admit that you you're you've got angry at the person who's died. Yeah, it's very sacrilege. It's not yeah. um, a polite society topic of conversation, and yet so many people I talk to, whether they've they've lost a spouse, or they've gone through a divorce, or their child has died, or their parent has died, or whoever, whoever, or whatever they've lost, there's this anger of how how dare you leave me here by myself without you, um, and. Yeah, uh, that was probably one of my primary angers at my mom. I think so much, especially in sudden and traumatic loss, is that sense of we weren't done. Like, how dare you walk out in the middle of this conversation? <laughs> um, <laughs> there was this audacity of, like, how dare you die at a time such as this? And uh, and it makes me laugh now, but in the moment it was, it was extremely intense because I was like, how do I keep talking to you if you're not here to talk to and I was, some days I would wake up and I'd give my ceiling the finger because I'm like, wherever you are, I hope you're happy because I am miserable as hell right now. Um, trying to have a one-sided conversation with somebody I wasn't done talking to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And not feeling like you're allowed to disagree with them or you're allowed to say those things to them because mm. they're dead. And it's like, you know, dis- disrespecting the dead or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. And it's and so you feel that kind of guilt about being angry at the person you've lost. And when actually you've got every reason to be angry. Like, you know. Um, There's a wonderful um, concept of people, people who die either become saints or villains. And yeah. it depends on the type of person that you were in life and or how the community and family around you saw you. But there's this don't speak ill of the dead law that we're all somehow supposed to obey, when in reality, I mean, even the people who we have made saints in religious culture, if you want to go back into that pool, have done some mm. pretty nutty slash, like, human stuff. Um, and I, I can't speak to what it is specifically, because I'm not a religious scholar, and I actually don't know a lot about people who are saints, but I, I could not believe that anybody in the entire world is not not at least a little bit human <laughs> that's right I mean that's one of the things that I've learned through through healthy grieving was it's okay to be human it's mm-hmm. okay just you don't have to be perfect you don't have to have it all together you don't have to get everything right you don't have to there's no f- formula like you know you can just be human 
and it's okay. Like, if you're in a difficult period, if you're a mess, if things aren't working out, if you're struggling, it's okay, you're human. You know, you're not Jesus or God or, you know, you're not perfect. You don't have to be perfect. None of us are perfect. I think if we let each other be human a bit more, we're willing to let each other be human a bit more, the world will be a better place. I think um, think you're absolutely right that you've touched on that. And there's a, a second component to that of like you're human and you're doing this for the first time. And I think a lot of that is what really uh, gets people in the gut because even when we're grieving for the first time, we think that (laughs) for most of us, because we're quote unquote adults, that we should know how this goes or we should have all the answers or we should, you know, know which phone call to make or which relative to call or what to do with the will or what to do with the house and all this other stuff. And I'm like, no, (laughs) uh, a most of grief in the aftermath of loss is a gray area anyway. And then B, uh, you're here for the first time. So to walk in expecting to do no wrong is pretty naive. And yet that's what most of us do. That's what I did too. I refuse to let myself be or look like anything but the mask of somebody who had all of their stuff together. Um, and then once that, that tantrum meltdown happened, it was like I'd been struck by lightning. It was like, oh my God, I did this and the world didn't end. Nobody called the cops. I didn't actually go off the deep end. I'm not as crazy as I thought I was. I'm not as broken as I thought I was. Mm. And uh, it, it, that was intensely powerful. And from that day on, I, I lived differently. And I think for for other people, it takes more than like one lightning bolt moment. But for me, that was definitely the hinge that, that opened that door. Yeah, absolutely. For me, too. Absolutely the same. Yeah, there's, 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 and I've, I think I've had a few of those moments, like you say, that, well, you, you know something has shifted, um, mm-hmm. and you know that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's so great to find some solidarity, I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm doing this series, really, is because I want people out there who are, who are going through some kind of grief, any kind of grief, to, to know they're not alone, and one of the best ways to do that is to share stories, because... Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's important to discuss theory and all of those that all the, all the concepts of grief, as well. I think that's important. But I think also when people just hear other stories of people who are grieved or, or are grieving, um, there's a lot of solidarity to it. Um, I remember I met this person at a pub. Like this, I was going out with some friends, and I met this. There's this person there who I met for the first time, and I found out they'd lost a parent. And we just spent the whole night talking because we just connected completely over the grief thing. And literally, it was just like, oh, because it's like, oh, somebody else has been through what I've been through, you know. Um, and we need that for sure. And it's not like normal in our society to talk about it on a regular basis. Mm. And so I think almost all grieving people either think they're alone or they're crazy or both because they think about it so much. And I'm like, oh, no, everybody who's ever grieved is thinking about it all the time. They're just not talking about it. And um, and my favorite, I think, is to, especially in the city of Chicago, either be on public transit or be in a Lyft or an Uber and find out that the person that I'm sitting next to or sitting in the mm. back seat of their car has experienced some kind of loss. And I have had some of the coolest conversations with Lyft mm. and Uber drivers on the way to the airport about you know, their kids who have died, their parents who have died, and or people who are, like, getting close to death, like my grandmother's on hospice or uh, my ex-husband is getting ready to die. Like, you know, 
people making preparations for grief as mm. well. So it's just fascinating that once you, and you've landed on this too, once you scratch off that first surface level of paint, you're like, oh, there's there's the grief right underneath it. Yeah, and it's really interesting because it, I think it must be an American thing because I, I get Ubers here and, and the drivers don't generally talk about that kind of thing. They're less sociable. But when I was in, when I was in the States, so I was in California, mm-hmm. I got a lot of Ubers and... Yeah, the same thing happened to me because I ended up talking to some of these people and get you know, and you hear some of their story and some of them were exactly what you're talking about, like either preparing to grieve or grieving. Um and yeah, you just end up I just ended up having these really deep discussions about about all that, you know, about loss and grief and you know, and some of them have just lost their lost a big job or or a relationship or something as well. It was just it was like, Wow. There's so many people who like who who are going through these kind of things every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are the so okay, so what are the biggest like what are the biggest lessons you've learned about grief from your experiences and, and also from doing what you do as well? Hmm. I don't know if anybody's ever asked that question in that way before. Oh well. Uh, I think some of the biggest lessons are <laughs> the one that's like jumping to the front of my brain right now is that grief is not what we think it is. It's like grief is that misunderstood relative that we all tell stories about and there's all these secrets about, um, you know, don't go near your aunt because she's kind of crazy or uh, your dad's always had a problem with his wrist since he was 12 or like all these it's like you get told about grief from other sources and then you meet grief yourself and grief is like, oh, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not who or what you thought I was. And so everything changes as a result of you getting to know grief personally. And what's interesting is the thing that's immediately downloading to my brain right now, I've also never said this out loud in a public forum, um, is that kind of the same thing is really true with God as well. A lot of people try and describe to you what God is or how God behaves or how God will treat you if you do X, Y, Z, or if you interact with him, then X, Y, Z, Y will happen. Um, And then in reality, when you meet God for yourself and interact with God for yourself, you're like, wow, everyone was really wrong. And I feel like the same thing is true in grief where our relationships to this universal experience are so unique there are points that we have in common with each other but for the most part like what you experience alongside your grief it's just never what you expected it to be and even grieving six going on seven years later for the death of my mom I'm still like oh this still isn't what I expected it to be later in the initial stages, it was very true because I was like, wow, grief is really not what I thought it was. But even now that grief has developed into more of a long-term relationship and it's accompanying me through my life, even the ways in which it changes or the things that trigger me or the stories that I'm impacted by or the movies that I cry at, I'm like, oh, I didn't expect that to be true with mm. grief. And yet that's what's happening. And so I think um, in addition to grief not being what we expect it to be, as like the first lesson I've learned, there needs to be, and this is part of why my book Permission to Grief came about, is like we need to give grief the space and permission to be what we don't expect it to be. 
Um, because there's first the realization of grief is not what I thought it was, but then you have to allow it to show up how it's actually presenting in the world mm. for you. One of my one of the exercises I do with my clients sometimes is to have them do a list of, of two columns when they're grieving. The the left hand column is here's what I expected grief to look like, and the right hand column is here's how it's actually showing up. And just seeing these two things next to each other, expectation versus mm, reality, which yeah. I know is like a really funny meme right now, expectation versus reality. Oh my gosh, um, it is, yeah. It's a, it's a really funny um, but also enlightening exercise about like, here's the box that I was trying to put grief in, here's what grief actually shows up in, the packaging that it's actually presenting itself to me in, whether it's a... Uh, a trash bag or a garbage truck or a water bottle or whatever it was. Like we thought grief would be coming in a box on our doorstep and it turns out it's a tumbleweed rolling across the desert. Like the, 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 the juxtaposition of like, I thought it would show up wearing these clothes and it's a totally different person. Um, mm. is, is so much of what happens in loss. And so as I get older and I continue to grieve my mom, I'm, I'm still trying to get to know this person, this living entity that grief is in my life. And I think that's the biggest lesson that I've learned is, wow, this is different than I thought it would be. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, my mother passed away 20 years ago now. Mm -hmm. So I'm really into this journey of grief and it's, it definitely evolves and it's circular, you know, it, it changes. Like, my, like, I've talked about this before. My relationship with my mother now is really interesting because I still have a relationship with her, but I can just talk to her sometimes. Sometimes I like... I don't know if this this has been your experience as well, but sometimes I'll be doing something or something will happen and I'll just get a sense of her being there. (laughs) And I'll just stop and look up and think like, oh, you're here, aren't you? Like, you're laughing or whatever. Um... And just have this like knowing smile, and almost. And again, it's another way of processing grief as well. Like because often I cry when that happens, but it's not sad tears. Um, and I think you get to that point with grief where it becomes. When you when you have those moments, you. You have joy because you remember the you remember the, you remember the good things, and because your relationship with them changes, and because maybe you've forgiven them for leaving you as well you know and I think yeah that happened that's certainly happened to me and I had a transcendent experience earlier earlier this no last year now crikey it's 2020 um because my mother was a French teacher and she spoke fluent French and I was at a Taze service and again I've told this story before in the podcast but um and it was in French and I was getting the words wrong and I started laughing, and suddenly it was almost like she she was there and correcting me and laughing at me because I was getting all the words wrong, and we were laughing together. And suddenly it was like we were just I was just in this other place, like almost outside of time, outside of space, everything. It was just us in this like moment, and I didn't realize what happened until I got home because I was so like almost outside of reality, outside of time. I literally. Got, I literally did a whole journey home and got home and started journaling before I realised what it was. And it was just this little moment of um, intimacy, I guess. You know, and those things happen. I think when, when you, as as you process grief, I think the deeper you go into grief, the more you can, 
have those kind of experiences um, and that's part of the healing um, and I don't know if you've ever had any of those kind of experiences but but yeah that's kind of where I've got to and it, it is a kind of it's it's grief but it's not painful grief anymore it's kind of joyful grief yeah. you know yeah. there's a um something that's coming really bright to my mind at the moment is an interview i recently did with uh jennifer matthews and she's actually coming on coming back shortly i don't know if her episode will have already aired by the time it's aired or if it will be coming soon um but she did a very controversial ted talk about the death of her partner uh who had breast cancer and in the aftermath of her partner's death, she laughed. And she wasn't laughing at the fact that death happened, but there was something so joyful for her about her partner dying that she laughed and had true experiences of peace and balance and joy pretty immediately. And so I think a lot of people thought she was insane. I thought she was a serial killer the first time I watched this TED Talk. I was like, you're insane, and I don't understand how this is possible because if this person truly was your life partner, why aren't you devastated? And as I took a step back and continued to watch the TED Talk, too, I was like, stay with this, see where it goes. Um, I had this sensation of, oh, that was me having my own rules for grief. Like, aren't all grievers devastated at the beginning? And the answer is no. Um, but she's had these experiences of, of true, just like very contented peace in the aftermath of her partner's death. And she told me during our interview, she's like, the biggest reason people feel pain and grief is because they feel disconnected from the person they love who died. So the source of pain is, is the illusion of disconnection. And it sounds like with the story with your mom and the laughing about the French and getting all the words wrong, is that for a split second or for however many minutes, that illusion of disconnection was gone and you were connected yeah, in that moment. Exactly. And so you were free from pain. And I had never heard it phrased that way until I had this conversation with her. And so my mind was absolutely blown. And... It helped me notice and plug into these moments in my life almost every day where for 10 seconds at a time, three minutes at a time, one minute of my time, I'm noticing that my mom is close by, nearby, on my mind, connected, like plugged in, and I am free from pain in those moments. And that's not to say there aren't other moments where like pain is crashing down upon me, which it absolutely is. Um, but yes, I have also had these moments where I'm like, oh, she's here. Like, the illusion of disconnection is, is, has dissolved. I mm. have lifted the veil, we are in the same room, even though her body is not physically here. Um, the first time it showed up for me, and I've shared this on one other show, I believe, was I started seeing numbers um, after her death, and I couldn't understand why. I would see 121, 747, 828, 313, everywhere, and I couldn't figure out why I kept seeing these numbers that were the same forwards as they were backwards. Even the first apartment I moved into in Chicago was 424, was the street address, right. but at work, and I would see it on the clock, and there would be these palindromes of, you read it the same forwards, and then it flips, and it's the same backwards, and I was like, what the heck is all this talking about? And um, I, I did a ton of research online, I couldn't find what I was looking for, as like spiritual meaning of palindromes, or numbers the same forwards that they are backwards. I was typing in all this random shit in my Google search. Yeah. History was probably really great. I don't know, I was trying to put a puzzle or something. And I don't know what rabbit hole I went down, but finally I landed on this, um, this blog that talks all about the sacred meaning of numbers. And in the English language, at least, there are pretty much uh, two palindromes that are used the most often in our language. And the first one is dad, and the second one is mom. And I was like... 
she's trying to talk to me through numbers. And so now every single time I see the clock like that, and it happens several times a day now where it's 8.18 or 3.23 or 4.14 or whatever time of day it is, I I personally consider that a point of connection with her. This may not be true for other people. Numbers may not be your point of connection with your person. But those are the moments for me for like two seconds. I'm like, the veil is lifted. Thank you for sending me that. And then the veil descends again, and I'm back mm. in my, oh, um, wow. my daily life or whatever you want to say. But yeah, um, but That's numbers beautiful. are an enormously large one for me. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I have I have moments of connection. I think like there's certain there's certain films that I know that she loved that yeah. I love, um, and yeah, things that when I see a, like a TV show that we used to watch together or something and laugh at laugh at together, those kind of that's that's what does it that that's what does that for me. But yeah, wow, that's beautiful. That's mm. so beautiful, and it's so great how she spoke to you through that. That palindrome, and it was like something that, something really cryptic. But now that's a really unique moment of connection. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I tend to encourage um, clients of mine sometimes who feel like enormously disconnected. Like I feel like I'm not hearing from my person at all, or that they're really far away. Which, like, yes, we've never had to physically be without them before, and then they die, and so they're. We, Mm. they're gone forever and so we really don't get a chance to not feel like what that's like whatever ever again um i usually have them make like lists of what are all the things that remind you of that person crazy wild doesn't make any sense and i had um this woman once write she wrote a bunch of different animals because they traveled a bit together and so there were like crows and cats and beetles and like all the stuff that they would see on their travels but then she's like and then he used to wear this red jacket i think like a patagonia jacket or something like that but he would wear it all the time no matter the weather over all of his clothes um and she's like i just added that to the list and i don't know what it means and then a week or two after she made the list and we talked about it together she's like you're not going to believe it but i was out i don't know at the grocery store or out running an errand or something like that and there was a man in front of me who was wearing his jacket and i was like oh my word and and it's not even Call it a coincidence if you want to call it a coincidence, but I also believe that the things that we tell ourselves to look for are going to show up more often. It's like the the yellow car bias. If you start looking for yellow cars, you're going to see a lot of yellow cars. If you start looking for red bicycles, you'll start seeing a lot of red bicycles. Um, And so if you're feeling disconnected, it's a really, really easy tool to feel more connected. Like all of a sudden their song that they loved will play over the radio or somebody will walk by smelling like their perfume out of nowhere and you haven't smelled it in six years or whatever, or somebody will have their first name. The receptionist at the new office you're working at will have their name and you're like, what the heck is that? And there's kind of a freaky deaky twilight zone moment that comes in and that all happens. But then also it's like, how can I continue to stay connected when my primary connection, the way we talked the way we'd hug each other, the way we'd be in person next to each other, the couch is missing. And so it's like you're trying to substitute all of this mm. in and practically recreate their energy again here on Earth. Mm. Wow. Ooh. So much great stuff. This has been such a great conversation. Um, it's really been great to hear your story and hear all the lessons that you've learned as well. Um mm. 
So I really appreciate that. Um, so what is, I think, just like the best way to end would be like, for people who are going through grief right now, who might be listening to this, what would be the one word you would have for them, the one message that you would want to pass on to them that they might need to hear? Mm. Oh, the, the phrase that's immediately jumping to my mind is put your weapons down. And it's this notion of you have permission to stop fighting this thing. You have permission to stop arming yourself against an attack from grief. Because for as much as it hurts, it's not out to get you or destroy you or kill you or totally ruin your life. I think we're trying to to push grief back into a corner or, as I write in the book, down into the basement, when in reality our best course of action is inviting grief to the table to eat with us and asking mm. what do you need, what do you want to say, what are you keeping quiet that... that I need to hear and and sitting down with grief and actually getting curious about it as opposed to arming yourself with guns and spears and trying to drive it out um, is really really powerful and I've had clients who've had stuff come up of, of you know I wish you would just let me hold you or I wish we could go back to that one bench on the park that we used to sit on all the time or I wish we could tell this story about our mom to our kids and these are things that grief is saying to people who are grieving. Or I wish we could ask our boss to work from home on Fridays. Or just like these small desires that grief has that it wants to infuse into your life as you're grieving. Um, it wants to be able to show up free from, you know, the hostile environment that is our judgment, criticism, analysis, curing, fixing etc so yeah drop your weapons put your weapons down that's beautiful so true so true so where can people find your work shelby connect with oh, you yeah. um <laughs> everything i do is at shelbyforsythia.com and i won't make it harder than it needs to be so if you want to get one-on-one -on -one grief guidance with me if you want to get live video support with me if you want to do grief journaling buy the book listen to the podcast, ask me to come speak at your next event. Like, literally everything lives on the site, so I won't give you a million links. Shelbyforsythia.com. Yeah. And the podcast is called Coming Back, and the yeah. book is called Permission to Grieve. So um, yeah. I'd recommend all of them. They're fantastic. Um, so thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's been really great having you on. This was wonderful, James. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening, everybody.